and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today we are continuing our ongoing short series titled, Elijah, a Man of Conviction. We opened this series several weeks ago and now get into the second lesson in this series. You will find the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, and class teacher Doug Brady will bring the story to life. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 130 people attend the class each week, and we always look forward to meeting newcomers and visitors. If you are in the Dallas area, we invite you to visit our class. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, which he's titled, A Man of Conviction in the Wadi. Open your Bible to the 17th chapter of 1 Kings and follow along. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We are back in our study of Elijah. Remember, I was gone one week, and then on the 3rd of July, we, we talked about our nation But we want to talk about Elijah. You remember, he was one of the most unusual men to ever live. Uh, He he never died. He raised somebody from the dead. I want you to think about that just a second. Here's a mother with her dead son in her arms. She's crying. She's heartbroken. And she says to the prophet, look, all she had was her son. And he says, give him to me takes him and he goes up to his room and in a little while we don't know exactly how long he comes back and gives her her son alive can you imagine what that would feel like to be able to do that and change heartache into ecstatic joy at the blessing that God would give he got to do that he was able to call fire of God down from heaven appear at the Mount Transfiguration But what I want you to really see if you can remember today, why in our time period now did we pick the study of Elijah? Does anybody know? What was the reason? What was the correlation? Frank? I want to say it's because Elijah was in a world full of evil. He was the only person to stand up for God and his... It had been a nation of believers that had now become evil and pagan. It does, doesn't it, Don? It really does. How how was Elijah successful? We want to know that because I think we will need to know that. If we don't already, very shortly so. Now, one of the things that made Elijah great as his foundation was he was a man of conviction. A man of conviction. Now, 
What does that mean? It means a man who was convinced of certain things. Elijah was principally convinced of three things. Can anybody tell me one of those three things that Elijah was convinced of? God is alive. He is real. This God, Yahweh, not any other God, Yahweh, the reality of him. One God. Can anybody tell me the second one? The second one, and by the end of this, I expect you to be able to reel these off. God's real. He was God's man, God's messenger. Third, in a general sense, that God has given him the power and the resources to enable him to meet whatever challenge comes before him. We will, if we're going to stand up as a man or woman of conviction, meet challenges. We have to be convinced that God has the power and the resources to enable us to meet whatever challenge comes. Now, if you remember, the last time we looked at him, we first saw the description of that great preacher, R.E. Lee, who said, Ahab was a toad sitting on the throne of Israel and coiled by an adder by the name of Jezebel. And so we saw that Jezebel was not a Jewish girl, but she was Sidonian. The daughter of Ethbaal, the, the king of Sidon, she was a high priestess of Baal. Ahab and Jezebel led a transfer from the worship of the golden calf, Nebat, that Jeroboam installed, to the worship of Baal. Then this man Elijah left his little country town of Tishbe. He walked all the way to Samaria. He walked into the throne room without invitation, unsummoned, and without announcement, and said three things. God is real. That Yahweh, He's Yahweh's servant, and it won't rain again until He says. That we're going to see is in 1 Kings 17, 1. But we asked the question last time, did God specifically tell him, audibly tell him to say that? And I believe the answer is no. God did not. Specifically speak to him audibly and tell him to say that. Well, then where did he get the authority to, to say such a thing? We'll talk about that as soon as we pray. Father, as we open your book today, I pray that you will speak through me and that the story of Elijah will come alive and that we will see what is involved in this man's heart and what you're going to do with him and how you're going to prepare him. Help us to understand the importance of preparation, spiritual preparation. Now, Father, I want to take a moment to pray for our nation. I pray, Father, that if it's your will, you will bring a great revival. You'll reach down and take the heart's and the heads of our people, and turn them towards you, and they will be softened, and no longer be hearts of stone, and that you will turn America back to her roots, that we will once again become a Christian nation who can supply the entire world with missionaries, that will become a nation that is based on Christian scholarship that's biblical and not heretical. Father, I pray also that you will bring down the wickedness in our nation. That the time will have finally come where you will intervene and you will say, yes, I am slow to anger, but the guilty will not go unpunished. And that you will show us your righteousness and your judgment. But if that's not your will, I pray that you come back soon. Maybe 
this September, Father. Take us home to be with you. But bless this study today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, the entire passage is there in your notes from Deuteronomy. Would Elijah have known about Deuteronomy? Well, Jewish boys growing up had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or maybe uh, the law. They knew this. The key portions of this passage I'll put on the screen for you. It's in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. It says, Beware that your hearts not be deceived, and you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord was giving you. That was his authority. Do we have authority to speak for God on what's written in his scriptures? Absolutely we do. The prophets of our nation need to be doing that. Now I want to direct you to a second passage. You know, Elijah was a man of prayer. There was a man of prayer really known in the first century church. Do you know who that was? Really the prayer warrior of all times in that first century church. It was a fellow by the name of James. Now, he was not John's brother. He was Jesus' half-brother. You know what his nickname was? Old Camel Knees. Because he had such calluses on his knees from praying all the time. He wrote about this prayer warrior named Elijah in the Old Testament in James 5.17. He says... Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Now see, he tells us something. Did it tell us in 1 Kings that Elijah was praying it wouldn't rain? No. He just said, it won't rain again until I ask. James told us that. But I want you to notice in this verse something important. Look at that first phrase. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What does that mean? Why did James tell us that? What is he really saying there? You can be just like Elijah. If you want to be. Really? Yes. He, your nature and his nature are the same. You're just alike. Oh my goodness. That's very important to understand. So let's see what in, went into this man whose prayer life was so powerful, who was able to stand up to Satan's minions without an ounce of fear. Now, if you normally enter a Middle Eastern throne room, uninvited, unsummoned, unannounced, you know what will happen to you? You'll be put to death. Do you remember the story of Esther? Mordecai told her, you're going to have to go in there and say something to the king, your husband. She says, if I go in there unannounced, they'll kill me. Unless he holds out his scepter to me. And he says, you have to do it for your people. And you know what her phrase was, her response? If I die, I die. Because she knew that was a very real possibility. But Elijah was able to get away with it. Because he was a man of conviction. They weren't used to men like him. He was so different from what they normally encountered. As a result of his conviction, he was filled with holy indignation. 
You are destroying my nation, Ahab, and that adder that encoils you. You know, even his name speaks conviction. Do you know what the name Elijah means? It means Yahweh is my God. Not pale, Yahweh. Look at that conviction again. I want you to see it in 1 Kings. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The reality of God. I'm God's man. And he has the power and the resources to enable me to meet whatever challenge. These three convictions are going to be repeated over and over by Elijah. Now, with that, he walks out of the palace. And as he's leaving, God speaks to him. And looks into what he says, starting in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward. And hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Just like Tishbe was east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now that's a very unusual thing. You know, there were some animals that were clean, and some animals that were unclean. Certain birds were clean, and certain birds were unclean. And one of the leaders of the unclean birds was ravens. And God's using them to provide for him. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now let's stop there just a second. Do you think as Elijah walked out of that palace, he was really feeling it? You know, it could be, Don, if you were there or I was there or Kim was there, you know, we would have said, now wait a second, God. You know, I'm really a palace man, not a go-hide man. You need to keep me around here. Uh, I need to be in the palace to confront this man. Would that have been radical obedience? No, because he'd be questioning God. No, he didn't hesitate at all. It was immediate, unquestioning, unconditional, wholehearted, complete, and consistent I'm going. Consistent. How consistent? A year and a half consistent. And so he is going to follow God's instructions. And so he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. So God now speaks for him to the first time because he honored God's scriptures and believed them. And God doesn't want him there. Why? If you know the story of Elijah, you know there's a great battle coming. I want you to think about this. If you took a guy who went down to the Marine Corps recruiter's office and he said, I want to join up, signs the papers. Instead of sending him to Paris Island, they send him immediately on a mission. How well will he do? Not so well. Why? We ain't any training yet. They haven't got him in Marine condition yet. You need that if you're going into a serious battle. You can't go unprepared. Elijah was a man of conviction. But was he ready for this kind of battle yet? No, he wasn't. And God knew that. You see, God didn't want him to stick around Samaria because the master knew, number one, Ahab was never going to change his heart. 
But number two, he was more concerned about hardening and sharpening his tool, Elijah. He was going to have to do that. You see, for this man to be useful for the Lord, he has to be humbled. He has to be taught to trust completely and unendingly. Uh, maybe one of the things that's interesting to see, in the Middle East, the names of locations many times are very significant for how God uses them. This is the brook or the wadi Cherith. What does that word Cherith mean? It means to cut. And it was used in the idea of to cut off or to cut down. Now, when you hear the term of, of the brook Cherith, you think of a little bubbling, rippling stream, uh, trees on each side, grass all around, and the wind is blowing a nice little breeze. There might even be a fish in there you could catch to eat, a nice little brook trout or something. No, that's not Cherith. Let me show you a picture of Cherith. This is an aerial view. Do you see the mountainous areas surrounding it? That green there is dense undergrowth. And you go to, from the top of this wadi down to the brook or the stream. It's about 500 feet. Let me show you what it looks like here. Now, does that look like the brook that you're thinking of? No. Down at the bottom, there's a lot of undergrowth. looks something like this. And you can see the photographer couldn't even get past all the trees and stuff to take that picture. But this is not the kind of place that you'd want to buy a timeshare in, if you'd want to buy a timeshare. And he needed to be there because this is really kind of a boot camp for Elijah. Uh, that's where he's going to go. And God wanted him alone with him. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. He's going to spend a year and a half there alone. Imagine for a second yourself there, alone. Julie, how long do you think you would last? She said two days. <laughs> She's not been able to talk with any other human being. I think I could last a little longer than two days. Mark probably thinks he could too. A year and a half? No human interaction? Who could you talk to in that space? God and the birds. That's it. And that's what's going on here. You have to depend on God for everything but the water you drink. Because you have a brook there. But if he doesn't send the ravens, you starve. This is intended by God to be a boot camp type experience for Elijah. He wanted to hide him away so he could train him in view of the battle that's coming against a very treacherous enemy. I think, as I read the scriptures, whenever God intends a man or a woman for greatness, he takes him aside for a period of time, basically so he can be all alone with him. I want you to think about this a second. Do you remember Joseph, sold into slavery, taken away his family, taken down to a foreign country and then placed in a foreign prison. You know, prisons in Egypt at that time, civil rights were really not much of a concern. Human rights were not much of a concern. Moses, he had to spend 40 years in the wilderness with some sheep that he was herding. And they weren't even his, they were in father-in-law's. David, he grew up 
with the sheep out in the field alone. He had to learn to survive all by himself. The only thing he could talk to was sheep or God. And then, once he had a chance to make it, all of a sudden he becomes a criminal. In fact, public enemy number one, on the run, constantly. John the Baptist, he spent his entire life in the wilderness. And what did he eat? Locusts and honey, wild honey. Paul, you remember, he went down to Mount Horeb, which is kind of a bleak place. Spent three years down there alone with the Lord. If he says, I want to seriously use you, you're going to probably want to be alone with him for a while, according to what his plan is. Some of you have spent some time alone. What is God going to do with Elijah down in Cherith? I learned something. I've shared this with you before, but every time I think of it, it, it brings back the memories. When I was in middle school, we had shop. Some of you may remember that, had shop. Now, I went to Thomas J. Rusk. Actually, it wasn't middle school then. It was called junior high school. And they had four shops, automotive shop, metal shop, electrical shop, and wood shop. All I was hoping I would get to go to electrical shop and wood shop, especially wood shop. That's where I really wanted to go. But no, I went to electrical shop, and then I went to metal shop. Now, the metal shop teacher, he thought, well, we're going to have a project that's going to last most of the time, so I don't have to mess with you guys. And so what he planned was for us to build or to make a cold chisel. Now, some of you know what a cold chisel is. Others of you don't. It's made out of steel, and it's sharpened to the point where if you need to cut through a screw or a nail or other piece of metal, you could do it if you had a hammer and the right cold chisel, a good one. Now, let me tell you the process. You get a piece of, like, a cold chisel looks something like this. But when you get these pieces of metal that either hexagonal shape or octagonal shape like that. Now, when you get it, it's covered with a bunch of gunk. And that gunk protects it from rusting and corrosion. So you've got to clean all that gunk off. Once you clean that gunk off, then you go and you start up the forge. And you heat that forge up and you put that piece of metal in there. And you have a hammer and anvil ready. And when it gets red hot, you pick it up with the tongs and you pull it out. Now, there were some idiots in my class who let it, they weren't paying much attention. And they didn't let it just get red hot, it got white hot. And the, the teacher said, now let me show you. And he takes the tongs and pulls that thing that turned red, uh, white hot, puts it in the water and then hits the anvil with it and it shatters. Because it overheated and it just became brittle. You see, the real craftsman has to bring it out when, just when it's red hot. Then he takes it over to the anvil and he starts beating on one end. And he pounds it down to where it's coming flat. So it's not round anymore at the end. It's flat. And you can see that picture of that guy doing that. And he's got, sometimes as you're doing it, you have to put it back and get it a little hotter again and bring it back out. But when you're hitting it, those idiots also who just would bang it as hard as they could, they would put such scars in it, they are now going to have to file for weeks to get those scars out. But that's the first thing you do. Now, after you get it into the shape, you put it back in, in, the, in the forge, get it red hot again, and then you come and you bury it in a bucket of lime. 
Now, that's not something you squeeze out of fruit. It's a chemical powder, lime. And the next time you come back, 24 hours later to the next class, that metal is now going to be as soft as it will ever be. Now, now you start working on it. And you start filing and filing, and it seemed like forever. You had to put it in a vise, and you had to put paper wadding around it so that the vise jaws wouldn't scar the metal. Because you smooth this one, and you turn it, and you realize, oh, now it's scarred over here. i got to do this one again. And you finally get it. You, you also uh, file around the top part to make it bevel. And then you have to file, for the most part, the, the, the edge to get it sharp. Then what you do is you put it back in the kiln. And you put it in that kiln again, and it comes up red hot. You watch it very carefully now because you put all that work into it. You probably spent a month and a half working on that silly thing. And so you don't want it to get white hot again. you just red hot, and you bring it out. And this time, instead of putting it in lime, there's a bucket of water. And you don't, don't put the whole thing in there. You just put the tip of it. And you watch. Pretty soon, colors will start forming on that piece of metal. And they will start rising to the top. And you've been instructed, as soon as you see the blue ring going up that piece of metal, you watch it very carefully. And right when it starts to get to the end, you jerk it out. Now, that piece of metal is going to be as hard as it can possibly be. And it's been forged like that now. And so you take it out. And now, the thing is, it's still raw metal. So you have to put a coat on it. You can either blue it or you can put a protective coating. And so you end up with a tool like this that's sharp. I can cut through metal with this. Just give me a hammer. I could cut through one of those chairs with ease. It's almost sometimes you think just like a knife through butter because this chisel has been made just that way. That edge has been sharpened like that. That is mine. Yep. Now, I didn't get it coated like this in the class, but I did later. Because the application I want to make is this. That is exactly what God was doing with Elijah at the bottom of the wadi. He was making him into a tool that was hardened and sharpened and would last and sin stains couldn't get to. That's what he was doing and he was making a warrior out of him. And so I wanted you to see that, that that's what's going on down there. He was performing that process on Elijah. Also, he wants to perform that same process on you. You say, wait a second, I'm not sure I want to be melted and banged and worked and sharpened and finished. But let me tell you, when you become the instrument that God can use, that's when you experience not just life, but abundant life. That's when you experience it. You see, it's interesting. When he came into the palace, who was he? Elijah the Tishbite. But after he spends a year and a half down in the wadi, he travels up to a place called Zarephath, and the person that meets him looks at him. He hadn't said a word. Looks at him. You're a man of God. She could see it in his appearance. In other words, the year and a half in chariot changed his appearance. He no longer was Elijah the Tishbite. He was Elijah the man of God. That's what God can do. If you give him the opportunity. 
Now, let's look at the story back again to the people he left in the palace for a second. They probably were laughing as Elijah left. They probably were saying, you know, who does that country bumpkin think he is? Doesn't he know about Baal? There's two things that Baal is really the god of that he specializes in. Rain and fertility. Rain and fertility. Whether it's animal husbandry or, you know, if you weren't having children, it's because you must have angered Baal. That's the way they looked at it. And so, what do you think is going on? I think they'd come to realize something. Because they were an agrarian society. Their economy depended on one thing. What was that? Rain. Now, he said it wouldn't rain. Well, you know, they may have thought, if it lasts for a couple of months, we can weather that. But then they maybe were reminded about what Elijah said. I want you to see that. It's in 1 Kings 17. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years. Now that's a whole different matter than a couple of months. Years? We're going to go years with no rain? That'll destroy us. Yeah. Exactly. You're worshiping the pagan God, and I promised you in Deuteronomy that I would do this to you if you did. And you were deceived. So, Elijah goes from the palace to the hideaway selected from him, from the public forum to the private haven, from the place well lit in public activity to the shadows of obscurity, so that God could accomplish his purpose twofold. He wanted to protect Elijah because they were coming after him. And they're searching everywhere for him. And they're going to kill him if they can find him. And for training. Well, he's in the midst of this training. He's learned to depend on God for his food. Everything's going great. And then we come to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. And let's look what it says. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Because there was no rain in the land. Now, Don, you and I would probably respond like this. God, I listened to you and what you said in Deuteronomy, and I went and told them. And I left there, and you spoke to me, and you told me to come here. And I didn't question you. I didn't ask for conditions. I went immediately to the brook Cherith, and I've stayed here a year and a half. And now you've dried the brook up, and I have nothing to drink? Why would you do that to me? That could be after a year and a half the way we might respond. So now what's he going to do? Where? No, you know what he's going to do? He's going to stay right there. Until God tells him what to do. Now, we're not going to hear today what God told him to do. But the brook dried up. Now, Don, why did the brook dry up? Because it was no ground. You're right. That's a brook that's, that's uh, fed by an underground spring, but that spring supplied by melting snow and rain. And for a year and a half, had there been any of that? No. You mean, wait a second, the brook dried up because Elijah prayed that there would be no rain. He did. And it's going to show him something. Now, there's some people who would also think, well, you know, I must have done something wrong because God's punishing me. No, he's not. Some people might say, you know what, it's not that he's punishing me, he's just 
forgotten about me. Didn't keep that brook flowing. You know, God told Isaiah something about that I wanted to share with you. I found this passage in Isaiah 49, starting in verse 14. But Zion, that is Israel, Isaiah 49, but Zion, or Israel, said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and Adonai has forgotten me. And then there's a response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion for the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I have not forgotten you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, there's something in that passage besides the fact that God will never forget us. What does he say he's done? He's inscribed me on his hand. I'm inscribed on the hand of God? That's what Isaiah says. You think he only did that to Old Testament believers and not new? I don't think so. Yes. And I, you're probably right. He was one of the last to leave water. But the fact is, there's two lessons Two lessons. And the first one is this. The God who provides water can also withhold water. I want you to think about that just a second. Does that have any bearing on us today? Well, not necessarily water. How about this? The God who provided us a business can also take it away. The God who gave us a spouse can also take them away. The God who gave us a child can also take them away. The God who gave us health can also take it away. If he has a purpose for doing that, will he do it? Absolutely he will. And we need to understand that. And this is a picture of that. It's not that he's punishing us. It's not that he's forgotten us. The dried up brook was the fulfillment of Elijah's prayer. You see, God's training ground is not designed for our comfort. You know, we hear a lot about elite corps in the United States seen a defense of the Navy SEALs. Is the Navy SEALs uh, training facilities designed for the comfort of those men? Yeah, it's, it's laughable. Of course not. Of course not. We want instant spiritual maturity, not the kind that requires sacrifice and emotional pain. So there's Four key points I want us to see before we close the book today. Four key points that I want us to see. Number one, we must be willing to be set aside if we are to be used. We must be willing to be set aside if we are to be used. That way we can learn to recognize God's voice. We need to learn the deep and enduring value of the hidden life of communion with the Master. Elijah learned that. Yes. When we are when we are set aside, aren't we then being used as well? Many times. Elijah, could you say he was being used in the brook Cherith? Unprepared. He was being protected and he was being trained. But trained is for a use, right? He's coming up to a big time battle, is he not? But first he's gonna to have to go through the postgraduate course up in Zarephath. He's got the graduate course here, and then the postgraduate coming up in Zarephath. But it's a training time, and that's the focus. I mean, if you look at it, God didn't really use Paul on Mount Horeb. He didn't even know anything hardly about it, except the brief little thing in Galatians he told us. But when he came back, was that man used? 
big time. Maybe nobody was used ever to the extent that Apostle Paul was. And so you begin to see that, and that's the first thing I want you to see. Number two, God's direction includes God's provision. So he's at the bottom of the wadi right now, and there's no water. Will God make provision for him? Because God told him to go to the wadi, didn't he? So whatever God directs you to do, he's already made provision for you. You know, there's a a Latin word that's provideo. It means to foresee. But if you look at the Latin etymology of that word, it also means to have prepared for what you have foreseen. That's what God does. You think, well, maybe he hadn't prepared any. No. God's already prepared for you. You just have to let him be in control and not decide, well, God's messing up. I'm taking over now. Nope. That doesn't work. And then you don't get any of God's preparation for you. Third key point I want us to see is we must learn to trust God one day at a time. Now, if I was to ask for a show of hands, how many in here trust God? Everybody probably would raise their hand. But I'm talking about one day. In fact, did those birds bring a week's supply of food? Did they even bring a day's supply of food? No. Half a day of breakfast? Did he get three square meals? No. He got two. Morning and evening. What can he do if ravens don't show up? Nothing but wait. He has to depend on God to bring it. The same way God tried to teach the people in the wilderness. You can only collect the manna for one day. Unless it's on Friday. Then you collect two so you don't have to collect on the Sabbath. But other than that, if you collect more than that, it's going to mold and spoil. And you got a mess on your hands. So God is teaching us one day at a time. Now, do you really trust God for each day? Well, if you're not sure, why don't you ask him and see? And tell him, I'm willing to learn that. Be careful. (laughs) Yes, Kim. You you don't know until it happens. True. Because, I mean, I I think that, you know, people have talked about, some of my friends we've talked about uh, what happens if the worst happens to the country and we're in hiding or whatever. How am I going to do it? What if I lose all of what I have and, and uh, scavenging for food? I say, you don't have to worry about that until it happens. Other preparers could get closer to the Lord all the time because God doesn't have to give you that much grace when you don't need that. Well, I agree. But did he not train you on one day at a time? Don't you remember when you were selling light bulbs door to door and you weren't paid a salary, you were only paid commission? You had to trust him each day that you could make enough sales, enough sales that week to survive, right? And God had to teach you that. Now, what you're talking about in an apocalyptic situation is obviously an elevated situation. But still, he works in our lives to teach us that, and he wants us to. And he wants us to learn that. And so, yes. You also have to, you also have to learn to trust to prepare when he's telling you it's coming. You can't just say, "Okay, I trust you'll take care of me." He's telling you to prepare. Yep. If if you're doing that, 
Let me move on because I don't want to miss this, and then I'll come back to you, Reen, in just a second. You know, those ravens came like that. There may be so many of us, here you think about it, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We're distraught and anxious and distracted and misguided. We feel so bad for other people, and we let it take over our lives. We've got to learn to trust God. Is God in control of our life? Is He in control of these other people's lives? Is He working through? You know, my wife has a hard time with that sometimes. You know why? Because her heart is so soft. And she cares for other people so much. And it just hurts her when other people are hurting. And I have to learn to encourage her in that. My heart's not like that. God's probably giving me someone like Julie. You're a lawyer. To help me. Well, of course. But he's given me someone like Julie to help me learn how to have a softer heart. The fact is, let's look at this point. A dried up brook is often a sign that God being pleased with you, not disappointed. Because you prayed and he answered. You know, think about this just a second. Abraham was at the zenith of his career. He, everything was going for him. He'd obeyed God now, and things were great. And what does God do? Go take your son and kill him. Whoa, this was a child of promise. But did, did Abraham question God? Fail to act immediately? Put conditions on it? I'll take him and kill him if you raise him from the... No, he didn't do any of that. You see, those kind of things happen. If you look at Paul, his first missionary journey, they hadn't... Nobody had done anything like this before, a missionary journey. But they, the, the elders in, in Antioch chose he and Barnabas and sent them out in Asia Minor. And things were going great. Churches are being formed. People are being one to the Lord right and left. Everything's great. And then he comes to Lystra, which happens to be right close where Timothy lives. And they stone him to death, they thought. And they left him for dead. Thought he was dead. Does God allow things like that to happen when you're obeying him? You know, Joseph was down in Egypt, but he said, I am going to obey my God. And when the mistress of the house came after him, he ran. And then he was falsely accused and falsely judged and put in prison. What, I'm put in prison for obeying you? Yes, because God was pleased with him and he was preparing him for what was going to come. God is not just building into us, but he also has to get rid of some things. He wants to build humility into us, faith, love, and a fear of him. He, he wants to be where you fear no one but God. We'll study that in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. But he also has to eliminate any trace of pride fear of anything else other than him, resentment, ungodly habits. He has to do that. Those are the things that he's going to do if you're really going to be used, if he's going to be able to sharpen and hone you so that when the time comes, you'll be able to stand with true conviction. Now, Rena, you had a question before. You know, I just wanted to comment that thinking about the story of Elijah and Lorraine, I was thinking about it before your lesson, Doug, because you watched the weather system across the United States with the Latina, 
and this is an extended long period of drought in the western and southern United States, and I was wondering, is God withholding rain from us? He may. It may be one way he comes after us. You know, it's interesting. I was just handed a, an article, and you know, that pandemic hit us in, uh, or was brought to us in 2020. But whose economy is recovering faster? The blue states or the red states? Red. Exactly. I wonder why. Ah. But let's look at one final thing here before we finish today. If you were to spend time alone with God, just you and God, would it change you? Would it change you even in how you appear to others? Can you, by spending time with Him, become a man or a woman of conviction? Being absolutely convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, the truth of what God has said to us. Can you? Yeah. Are you willing to pay the price? That's the question, right? Are you willing to pay the price? Do you want to be a man or woman of conviction? You need to think about that because there is a price involved. You know what the Apostle Paul said? He said, this is the analogy. I knew a guy named Jim Montgomery. And Jim Montgomery went to college in Indiana. And Jim Montgomery was a swimmer. And his specialty was the 50-yard freestyle. Now, I got to swim with him in the Lone Star Masters Swim Club for a while. Those of you who look at me and you say... Man, I can't see that you ever were a swimmer. But the fact is, I loved swimming. I'd wake up early in the morning and go train with him and, and his group. And I got a chance to meet with him and talk to him. And I asked him, tell me what it was like training for the 1980 Olympics. And he said, you know, no sugar. Eating these things, things that weren't appearing too appetizing to me. He would be up in the morning, late in the evening, practicing the turns, practicing the dive, uh, improving all these things. I can't even remember all the stuff he had to do. But uh, let, me, let me tell you, one of the things that he would do to train himself, he would train in a 50-meter pool, which is what you would swim the 50 meters in, and he would swim down where he would take a breath of every stroke. So when this went in, this arm came up, this head came up this side to breathe. And when this arm came in, he would breathe in. He'd get down to the 50 and come back the same way. Then the next time down, every second stroke. The next time down, every third stroke. And he said he would get up to 12. Now, 12 is easy if it's the first time you jump in the pool. But after you've been swimming like that, and you only get... I'd have a hard time keeping track of when the 12th time came. But 1980 came, and he was in Montreal. And he swam a faster 50 than anybody had ever swum in the world. And he got the gold medal. And that gold medal is awesome looking if you get a chance to look at it. For a brief moment in time, you're the greatest athlete in the entire world. You know what Paul says? I mean... How many of you in here knew Jim Montgomery before I just said something about him? Anybody? You know, Paul said, they all do it for an imperishable wreath. But I want you to do it for one that lasts forever. Does the wreath Elijah have, does it last forever? Absolutely it does.
the one that you can win can also last forever and please the master immensely. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be studying this man's life. I pray that you will encourage us, motivate us to want to understand how we can become men and women of conviction. Help us to understand that there will be battles ahead and we will have to train for them. And we may have to spend some time alone with you. Help us to understand that's okay if that's what you want. We want to have, we want to want what you want us to want. May our desires be ones that are pleasing to you. Now, Father, I pray that you'll bless this time that we're spending together. And I pray that you'll bless this next service that is coming up. And Father, I want to pray that you will bring back to our church an altar call. I pray that you will bring back the counseling ministries so that we can share the good news with everyone. And I am, Father, in a second going to ask the class to pray for that. And I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.